This podcast is brought to you by the Administrative Committee of the Presbyterian Church in America, promoting the unity, purity, and progress of the church. Learn more about the Administrative Committee and support its work by visiting PCAAC.org. Welcome to Gifts and Graces. All Christians have communion in each other's gifts and graces, says the Westminster Confession. So on this podcast, we help you and your church benefit from the gifts and graces of other parts of Christ's body. Each episode, we bring you a seminar, sermon, or discussion from church leaders across the country and around the world designed to promote the unity, purity, and progress of the church. This is Gifts and Graces. On this episode of Gifts and Graces, we get to hear from Kenneth Stewart as he talks about the 1930s-era Reformed resurgence. Kenneth Stewart is Professor Emeritus of Theological Studies at Covenant College. This seminar was recorded at the 2021 General Assembly in St. Louis. Let's listen as Kenneth Stewart discusses fresh light on the 1930s-era Reformed resurgence. Since at least 1970, the English-speaking world has been witnessing a steady resurgence of interest in Reformed preaching and theology. One good example of this modern resurgence would be the Philadelphia Conference on Reformed Theology, begun in 1974 under the leadership of the late James Boyce. I'm drawing here on remarks uh, James Boyce published one year later in uh, March 1975. He was gearing up for the second iteration of PCRT, and he made some very, very interesting points as he reflected on the successful initial run of PCRT. Uh, He said four things. Uh, Number one, the conference had succeeded in drawing together attendees from across the United States. It was not just a regional event. Uh, Number two, uh, people came from a broad range of evangelical denominations. Uh, Presbyterians were there in numbers, but by no means were they the only attendees? Uh, number three, the presenters in PCRT came from across the USA and also from Great Britain. Uh, I was there uh, in 1974, and I remember it vividly. Uh, there were John Gerstner and R.C. Sproul, who, like uh, James Boyce, was still in the Northern Presbyterian Church uh, from Britain. In those early years came speakers like J.I. Packer, uh, John Stott, uh, Eric Alexander. And fourthly, and finally, um, there was this intriguing fact, which I was unaware of until I read James Boyce's uh, treatment of this in Christianity Today. Uh, James Boyce and 10th Presbyterian Church were assisted in launching PCRT by an organization you may or you may not have heard of called PUBC. 
This was Presbyterians United for Biblical Concerns. And it had come into existence in the 1960s out of alarm at the Confession of 1967. So James Boyce and 10th Presbyterian Church were not acting alone. Now, utilizing the launch of PCRT in 1974 as a weather vane indicating reform resurgence opens up a Pandora's box. Out of this Pandora's box spring a variety of competing explanations about the source of our recent reformed resurgence. Let me name a few. Writing in 1981, biographer Ian Murray portrayed this man, Arthur Pink, as one of the sources of our modern resurgence. Uh, Ian Murray said of uh, A.W. Pink, he stood practically alone. Was he really so alone? Well, Ian Murray thought he was. Um, there's the biography. Uh, everybody knows who this is. This is Martin Lloyd-Jones as he looked in the 1940s. Uh, according to this book uh, by John J. Murray, who is no relation to Ian Murray, uh, it is uh, Martin Lloyd-Jones who stands at the headwaters of the modern Reformed resurgence. It's a very interesting story. Uh, Martin Lloyd-Jones was guest preaching one summer when he was still a Welsh minister. He was guest preaching in Toronto. And it was in Toronto that he encountered the published works of B.B. Warfield. And it was a life-changing event for Martin Lloyd-Jones, who to that point had been a fiery evangelist, uh, but he was not formally trained theologically and encountering Warfield had a life-changing effect for him. But we're not done yet with competing explanations. Um, recently, I gave away 25 years of Christianity Today magazine. When I had to give up my office at Covenant College, that had to find a new home. But by reading Christianity Today uh, faithfully, you may have seen this story. It came out in 2006. And it was uh, preparatory to the publication of this book in the next year. Colin Hansen, uh, who lives in Birmingham, Alabama, as uh, the author of both. Um, he went around and did interviews with uh, the Mark Driscolls and the John Pipers, uh, who were even more prominent 15 years ago uh, than they may be today. Uh, but the interesting thing about Colin Hansen's uh, approach to this um, is that he thought that this reformed resurgence that he wrote about in the magazine and in his book was primarily traceable to literature uh, put in circulation by the Banner of Truth Trust and the like. So we have no shortage of possible explanations of where the reformed resurgence has come from. But wait a minute, uh, somebody will want to say, don't we get a seat at the table? Uh, the PCA was formed in 1973. We, we all know this. Uh, in the PCA, there are today two uh, contributing streams. Uh, one begun in 1973 and one begun in the 1930s. Uh, Gresham Machen had 
no sooner been instrumental in founding the Orthodox Presbyterian Church uh, than there was a division out of which came the Bible Presbyterians who were uh, the origin of the Evangelical Synod of the Bible Presbyterian Church which turned into the RPCES. Um, somebody will say these two movements singly and together deserve a place at the table if the discussion is about where did the modern reform resurgence come from. I agree. Uh, here we definitely have a contributing stream. Um, on the PCA side of the ledger, the very interesting thing is that uh, two factors jump out. Number one was the foundation in 1942 of the Southern Presbyterian Journal. I remember reading the Southern Presbyterian Journal as a student in Philadelphia in the 1970s, and it was quite unlike anything I had seen before. Uh, quite a driving force. The other thing uh, was that there had been, right through the 1960s, a steady stream of graduates from Columbia Theological Seminary uh, in Decatur. And um, uh, this is really very impressive when you find into, when you look into it. Let me name some names. All of these were among the founders of the PCA. Donald B. Patterson, class of 1951. Morton Smith and Kennedy, Kennedy Smart, class of 1953. James M. Baird, class of 1957. Paul Settle and James Kennedy, class of 1959. And so it goes. This seminary, more than any other Southern seminary, uh, contributed definitely uh, to there being a PCA. Um, what if we look on the other side of the ledger? Uh, I found this very interesting also. Uh, the Bible Presbyterian Church and the Evangelical Synod that grew out of it were, by contrast, to uh, the Southern Presbyterians who came out of Columbia Seminary. The Bible Presbyterian movement was very eclectic. It was very eclectic. Um, you cannot find a single institution like Columbia Seminary that had been instrumental in shaping the perspective of Bible Presbyterians. Um, I find this very fascinating uh, because some of these names are, are still very well known. Uh, think, for example, Oliver Buswell. He had been the president of Wheaton College, uh, but Oliver Buswell was a graduate of McCormick Seminary in Chicago. Uh, there were other leaders of the Bible Presbyterian Church who were graduates of Princeton, uh, some of Westminster, uh, some like Francis Schaeffer had begun at Westminster and finished at the new seminary Faith Seminary, Wilmington, Delaware. But um, the Bible Presbyterian movement and Faith Seminary were very eclectic. And I, I mean that in a positive sense. Um, Faith Seminary, Wilmington, Delaware actually made a very large contribution to wider American evangelicalism. Uh, three names that pop up, uh, Arthur Glasser, a very well-known missiologist of 50 years ago, eventually taught at Fuller Seminary, California. Vernon Grounds became the president of Denver Seminary. 
He was a graduate of Faith Seminary. Kenneth Cancer, the eventual dean of Trinity Evangelical Divinity School. Uh, so the Bible Presbyterian movement and Faith Seminary may have been relatively small, uh, but let's say they punched above their weight. They were also distinctive uh, for their allegiance to premillennialism. And the version of the Westminster Confession and catechisms uh, utilized by the Bible Presbyterians were slightly modified to make their commitment to that viewpoint uh, explicit. Uh, but look, uh, all of this is very interesting, but it suffers from a limit. And I would say this about every stream that I have mentioned so far. Um, these interesting stories stretching back into the 1930s, when you stand back and think about it, they are stories of marginalization. They are uh, stories of persistence in the face of difficulty. They tell us about faithfulness, fidelity, but not victory. So I suggest to you, we need to go looking still farther afield. Uh, I have no doubt that every one of the strands that I have mentioned so far, this would include PCRT, have definitely made a contribution uh, to where we stand today. But the roots, we have to keep looking for. Now here's an interesting fact. At the same time in the 1920s and 30s that there began to be fresh curiosity about the Reformed faith, there was also happening a theological reaction. We usually call this theological reaction neo-orthodoxy. That's the convenient label we put on it. But neo-orthodoxy was itself a theological reaction against optimistic liberalism. And the thing that turned the tide was World War I, followed by a flu pandemic. And it made people who were fascinated with theological liberalism think again. And I've seen essays published by people you and I would not call conservative evangelicals from the 1930s asking the question, is Calvinism coming back? And all they meant by that was that they were hearing people talk about original sin in a way that had not been permissible 10 or 15 years later. Uh, in this category, um, of disillusioned persons who began to think again, we would be able to put people like the Niebuhr brothers, one who taught at Union, New York, and another at Yale. And of course, in Europe, uh, there would have been Karl Barth and Emil Brunner. Um, but the resurgence of Calvinism that I want to talk about in the 1920s is flexing its muscles at the same time as this other movement. And there were some overlaps uh, in the early days. I want to suggest that this movement, which could be called modernist traditionalism, or if you will, neo-orthodoxy, it for a period of time was a fellow traveler with the resurgence of Calvinism that I'm talking about.
So here we go. Let's move rapidly. Uh, I'm going to talk to you about four strands which, beginning in the 1920s, began to have a transatlantic effect. You may find that this is a strange place to begin. But in fact, chronologically, in the 1920s, this is the first Christian denomination to make efforts uh, to re-energize international Reformed theology. Uh, not many people here know Dutch, but the Herr Reformierte Kerken uh, could be called the mother church of the U.S.'s Christian Reformed Church. In fact, the Herr Reformierte Kirchen does not exist any longer. It has merged into a national Protestant church in Holland. But in the 1920s, this was still the church of Abraham Kuyper and uh, such like. Uh, around 1925, this denomination began to ask itself what can be done in the post-World War setting to re-energize international reformed theology. And they did two things. First, they established an endowed lectureship in Amsterdam. And their plan was to invite into Holland foreign representatives of the reformed faith in order to build up solidarity. Uh, they made an invitation initially to the famous biblical theologian at Princeton, Gerhardus Voss. And he was unavailable. So as their second choice, they turned to a Scot whom I'm sure you've never heard of before. Uh, this man, Donald McLean, was um, professor of church history in Edinburgh in the theological college of the psalm-singing Free Church of Scotland. Quite a scholar in his own right. He was invited to Holland, um, and of all things, he talked to the Dutch about Scottish church history, just what they needed to know. <laughs> Uh, his, his lectures were eventually published under this title. But something else happened during this visit that Donald McLean paid. A discussion began in Amsterdam in 1927, and the discussion was about the troubles that Princeton was in. And it was concluded that one thing that was going to happen as part of the troubles at Princeton was that the famous theological journal published at Princeton called the Princeton Theological Review, which the Princeton professors used as artillery to defend the Reformed faith. They were pretty sure that it was going to be killed. And so Donald McLean went home from Amsterdam in 1927 with the vision of starting a new theological journal. And the first issue of it came out in January 1929. Now, that's very significant, but for reasons that I will explain uh, in fuller detail in a minute. But the Dutch did something else in this same period of time. They decided that they would send representatives into the English-speaking world to try to find ways of collaborating with Calvinists in other lands. And uh, there is this gentleman. He was actually American, but he had been born in Holland, served as a Christian Reformed minister in the Midwest, 
And then uh, after a bereavement, he had gone back to uh, Holland, I think, to find a second wife. And uh, while he was there, he volunteered to go over to Britain, to London, and attend a conference. And this conference was hosted by a group utterly unknown to us called the Sovereign Grace Union. Uh, it was an alliance of Calvinists who were holdouts uh, against the theological drift that was going on in Britain just as it was going on in other places. And uh, Van Lonkhuizen got up and made a speech. It was an impassioned speech. And he said, we need cooperation of reformed people inside countries and cooperation across national boundaries. And the implication is that the Dutch were ready to spend money on this project in the 1920s and 30s. And the fruit of this would become obvious in 1932. Second, and this is the media subject that we're going to deal with today. Uh, I have read recorded speeches of Gresham Machen made around 1929 and 30. And he has to bear the responsibility for popularizing language that talked about Princeton's death. Princeton's death. Uh, now this trips off our tongue very easily. Uh, but he popularized the idea that with the reorganization of Princeton in 1929, it's like the plug had been pulled. Uh, it was terminal. Uh, this has led to confusion. And what I want to argue here briefly is that Princeton was written off too quickly for several reasons. Uh, number one, Princeton still had on the scene at least 30 years of theological graduates out there in the churches, mainly in the north, but some in the south, uh, who were preaching and teaching just what they had been taught. And this workforce of Princeton graduates from before 1929 wouldn't retire until the 1950s and the 1960s. Uh, keep these in mind when you ask yourself, where did the supporters of PCRT come from in the 1960s and 70s? The other part of the story that has gone untold is that many of the theological leaders of the Christian Reformed Church headquartered in Grand Rapids were themselves Princeton graduates. And Louis Burkhoff, who wrote the systematic theology, is only the most famous of them. Uh, it's one of the reasons why Louis Burkhoff's systematic theology ended up being used in Presbyterian seminaries. He was recognized to be Presbyterian trained. Third, Princeton has been written off too early because most of the faculty members, these were the colleagues of Machen, stayed with the ship. And these men didn't retire until the late 1930s or about 1940. And so they went on teaching as they had been doing irrespective of the disruption. This doesn't mean that there were not dark things happening at Princeton, but these men stayed at their posts and trained a future generation of ministers. Uh, what's more, 
1929 and 30, Princeton added conservative professors to replace those who had gone with Dr. Machen to Philadelphia. Uh, and uh, two of these were quite famous. Uh, one of them you've probably heard of before, the famous historian of missions, Samuel Zwamer, was added to the Princeton faculty at just this time. Uh, what is more, uh, Princeton-type graduates were still being trained for the Northern Presbyterian Church until 1936 at the new seminary Machen established in Philadelphia. And until Machen was unceremoniously defrocked and lost his ordination in 1936, Westminster graduates were welcome in the Northern Presbyterian Church. Uh, Princeton's influence was continued through Westminster in the Northern Presbyterian Church until the time of Machen's defrocking. And even beyond 1936, Westminster graduates were welcome in the Southern Presbyterian Church. They were welcome in the, um, the United Presbyterian Church. This was John Gerstner's movement. And uh, they were welcome outside the United States in mainline denominations, too. So uh, Princeton has been written off prematurely as one of the sources of the survival of the Reformed faith uh, in the 1930s and 40s. Now, number three, and here I move very quickly. Uh, this period was a period when, with great flourish, new publications uh, started to promote the Reformed faith. And I've uh, referred to one of these already. Uh, it's the Evangelical Quarterly, published from Edinburgh. Uh, there is what an old copy of this looks like. Um, fascinating story. The editors of this are both professors at the Theological College of the Free Church of Scotland. The lead article in the first edition is written by none other than Caspar Wister Hodge, the last of the Hodges to teach at Princeton. He, he kept on teaching at Princeton until uh, 1937. Uh, it had been understood that the Princeton Theological Review was going to die because it was divisive. It was being used as heavy artillery by which Princeton professors could criticize theological trends happening elsewhere in the Northern Church. And this was seen coming. And the Evangelical Quarterly was intended to become the international journal of Reformed theology that the Princeton Theological Review could no longer be. Uh, page one, issue one, is this Princeton professor and his subject, the Reformed faith. Uh, they have not run up the white flag at Princeton. Uh, you can find other Presbyterians of this generation. Anybody in the room ever hear of Thomas Carey Johnson? He is of the same generation as Caspar Wister Hodge. Uh, but you can read his articles about the Ordo Salutis in the early issues of the Evangelical Quarterly. A young man who is just coming to prominence 
William Childs Robinson, who spent his whole teaching career at Columbia Seminary. He is contributing to this journal in this period of time. Uh, the missions professor from Princeton, who I just referred to, is publishing regularly about world missions. And by late in the 1930s, the faculty members from the new seminary at Philadelphia uh, are beginning to collaborate also. This is very significant. You have international reform scholars collaborating together in the same journal in a period when we have been led to believe the lights had been turned out. Uh, no, a corner has been turned. And then these are the Dutch contributors to this English language journal. Uh, at least some of these names you will have heard of before. I think the most famous name here is uh, Ritterboss. Uh, Hepa was the successor to Hermann Bavink, the famous theologian uh, at the Free University of Amsterdam. So uh, there are also French theological authorities, soundly conservative, soundly reform, who are contributing to this project. Uh, journal number two, Christianity Today. No, this is not the Christianity Today I referred to with Colin Hansen's Young, Restless, and Reformed. No, this is the original Christianity Today. Um, it was published by a gentleman named Craig, Samuel G. Craig. Samuel G. Craig was a Princeton graduate of 1900, and he was a firm supporter of Gresham Machen and a firm supporter of Westminster Seminary. Christianity Today existed to alert concerned Northern Presbyterians to the peril that was being faced. And so Samuel G. Craig, through this new magazine, uh, published by a company you've heard of, Presbyterian and Reformed Publishing Company, which at that time published no books, only this magazine, um, he promoted the cause of conservative Presbyterianism and of the young seminary. But then there came a parting of the ways because Samuel G. Craig was one of the Northern Presbyterians who accepted that the rival mission board that Gresham Machen had set up was unacceptable in denominational terms. Uh, Machen was not very happy with Samuel G. Craig and the net effect of that is that an yet another magazine began called the Presbyterian Guardian. And the Presbyterian Guardian we think of today as the OPC magazine. But in fact, the Guardian began before the OPC came into existence. But Samuel Craig wasn't done. He kept on publishing the Christianity Today, uh, the original Christianity Today, into the 1940s. And it was of such wide influence that when in 1956, Billy Graham and Nelson Bell uh, determined to begin a new pan-evangelical magazine, they borrowed, with permission, the Christianity Today name from Samuel Craig because it was a known quantity. It was a known quantity. Third magazine, bet you never heard of this one, called the Calvin Forum. This is a highly influential magazine which began to be published in Grand Rapids in 1935. And it was with a difference. Uh, I don't know about you, uh, but 
Grand Rapids is not thought of as significant for us, uh, for the PCA. There's reason to reconsider this. This magazine, which was published by the faculty of Calvin College and Seminary, was determined from the outset to be cross-denominational and international. Uh, there were contributing to it writers, contributors from all around the world, and it was concerned with the fortunes of the Reformed faith in all the American churches. Um, interestingly, the editor of this magazine, like Louis Burkhoff, was a Princeton graduate. And it's very interesting to read the commentary in the Calvin Forum in the late 1930s about how things are unfolding at Princeton. Not that reassuring from the viewpoint of Clarence Bauma. And this is a person who deserves to be much better known. Do you know that he was personal friends with both Martin Lloyd-Jones and Donald McLean? Uh, Clarence Bauma was invited from Grand Rapids into Britain uh, to speak at conferences there. And uh, there were appreciative letters written from Britain by Martin Lloyd-Jones and by um, Donald McLean uh, praising this magazine. It's another example of uh, international collaboration at a time which we think of as dark. Now fourth, uh, the 1930s are a period when reformed Christians begin to Congress. Uh, they begin to attend international events which are designed as showcases of the advance of the Reformed faith. Here's where the Dutch come in. Um, this gentleman, Van Lonkhuizen, who had attended a conference in London in 1928, encouraged the organizers of that small conference in London to think big. The effect of that is that by 1932 at London, there's an international conference hosted by the Sovereign Grace Union, and it is about the Reformed faith. Uh, this is to some degree international, but the Depression is raging, and I am not aware of any Americans who attended this conference. But there are big names in Reformed theology there uh, from Holland and also from France. They meet again in 1934. This time the conference is in Amsterdam. Again, the big names are European. But papers are presented in four languages. By 1936, the conference is in Geneva. And the subject is eternal election. That will be interesting because some speakers show up and disclose that they are Bartian. I told you that these movements traveled together for a brief period of time. There's controversy, and the Bartians are put in their place. 1938, Edinburgh. And it's at this conference that you finally begin to see a crowd of Americans crossing the Atlantic and participating. Uh, I have seen the published proceedings of this conference. The, the copy I used is in Covenant College's library. How it got there is an amazing story. 
But I want to draw attention to the fact that the number one American contributor to this international conference was the person we've heard about already, William Childs Robinson of uh, Columbia Seminary, Decatur. Now, a war starts, and this is going to put on hold for a number of years these kinds of conferences. But there is an American who, though he has not attended these conferences, is determined to emulate them. This is another Christian reform minister who is a graduate of Princeton, Hoogstra. And Hoogstra is a minister in Englewood, New Jersey. And collaborating with some of his pastoral friends, he organizes the first American Calvinist Congress. It's in Patterson, New Jersey, <coughs> June 1939. And they have 500 people show up to hear addresses from people like this. And you're beginning to see conservative, separated Presbyterians, John Murray, uh, beginning to collaborate with people still in the main line, like William Childs Robinson. Uh, John McLeod, the Scot, was the principal of the Theological College of the Free Church in Edinburgh. Now, there was a long hiatus in these American Congresses, but they began again in, the in 1956. This was really interesting. Again, you begin to see conservative Calvinists collaborating with others. Paul Woolley, who was just about off the scene when I went to seminary in the 1970s, he was there representing the OPC. John Gerstner was there. And there was a Southern Presbyterian there. This is very interesting. I would have expected to see William Childs Robinson show up again. Uh, but Moody McDill, who's a PCOS minister from Jackson, Mississippi, is there. And he has done a very uh, extensive survey of the state of Reformed theology in the Southern Presbyterian seminaries. And he's not very pleased at what he found. But this is lying in the background out of which is going to grow RTS Jackson, Mississippi. Um, have you heard of this book? To my knowledge, this represents the high point of the American interdenominational um, Calvinist Congress movement. I have this book in my library. It's an excellent book. International Reform Scholars, a good number of whom are Americans, uh, have contributed to this volume commemorating the 400th anniversary of the publication of the final edition of Calvin's Institutes. John Calvin, contemporary prophet. So here we are. How are we wiser? And you have these seven points on the outline I've put into your hands. It's not isolated individuals who are responsible for the resurgence of the Reformed faith. There are individuals, but the individuals are parts of networks. Number two, the disillusionment with liberal theology after World War I helped this movement forward, but eventually it split apart. Number three, Princeton was written off much too early 
its conservative influence extended at least until 1940, while those original faculty members stayed on the scene. Conservative Calvinism may have been marginalized in the Southern Church, but not to the point where it couldn't flex its muscles. And the foundation of RTS in 1966 is an illustration of how, though marginalized, uh, conservative Reformed people in the Southern Church were capable of fresh initiatives. We need to pay much more attention to the fact that similar surviving Calvinism remained in the Northern Church. You cannot explain the opposition to the Confession of 1967 without it. You cannot explain the beginning of PCRT without it. It survived. We need to acknowledge a debt to the Christian Reformed tradition. Uh, the Christian Reformed tradition has gone its own way in the last 20 years. But there's no denying that they were at the head of things in the 1920s and 30s. And if you want further evidence of the extent of the Dutch influence over Reformed theology, uh, I have compiled a whole list of American conservative Reformed leaders uh, who went straight to Amsterdam to get their theological doctorates. And everybody in this room has heard of one or more of those. Who am I speaking of? Uh, I'm referring of, to people like Morton Smith. Everybody knows Morton Smith. He was the, one of the original fathers of the PCA, uh, taught theology in Jackson, Mississippi, before becoming the stated clerk of the PCA. I could name six or eight people like that. So here are um, different roots of the conservative reform resurgence than we may have considered. Thank you very much. hear more talks like this by subscribing to the Gifts and Graces podcast. You can also hear more content like this by attending a seminar at General Assembly. They are free and open to the public. Find out times and locations by visiting pcaga.org. Thanks for listening to Gifts and Graces.